Well, this is a very unique Sunday for our church. Uh, it's unique for me because I've never been at a church that celebrated its uh, 50th anniversary before. It's unique for the church as a whole because uh, we have some members, uh, two of them that have been here virtually the entire time. Uh, the work has been going on and we're thankful for them. It's also unique for the church as a whole uh, because this isn't just some club. We're not celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Eagles Club or the Rotary Club. This is, this is a church. And what that means is there are uh, eternal purposes at work, eternal purposes at work that brought this body together 50 years ago. And uh, we pray eternal purposes that will continue it on into the future. And what that means is everything that we do this morning is to be reframed in light of those eternal purposes. All of the uh, memories, all the celebration, uh, all the reasons for why we've come here this morning have to be understood and seen in light of the eternal purposes of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, because we're here this morning and we're not just a club, we are the church. We are united not just with God's people of the past, but also God's people of the future. We've had a great opportunity in the video to look to the past, but you know, we also at the end said, what, is, what, what are we going to have to do to keep things moving into the future? We always have to be thinking about the next generation and raising them up and passing on all of the things that the Bible says are important for Christians and for churches to believe and to do. And the question is, how are we going to do that? What is it going to look like for us to be now the kind of church that will last for another 50 years? Well, the reality is if you were to go to any Christian bookstore, you would find a myriad of books that would seek to tell you how to do that. Here's how you be a successful church. Here's how to be an effective church. And although some of those books are certain, certainly worthwhile, in fact, we'll talk about one of them uh, about halfway through the sermon, nevertheless, the reality is those books are only effective if they are drawing out the principles that God Himself lays out for us in His Word. And so that is where we want to turn this morning to get God's instruction. And what we want to do is see an example of a healthy church, why it was healthy, and how we can imitate it. So I, again, invite you to follow along as I read from Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we're only going to look at verses 3 through 8, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 so that we can get the context. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to Him. You know, uh, growing up, for the most part, uh, all of my life, say for the first four years or so in church, uh, I've heard uh, uh, several sermons from Philippians. And one of the things that you almost invariably hear the preacher say is that Philippians is a book about joy. 
It's a book about joy. And it is true that Paul is a very happy camper in this book, which is surprising because he's writing this letter from prison. Uh, so he's not in a very happy place, and yet he is truly filled with joy. And he talks about joy quite a bit. But the question is, why is he joyous? Why can't he talk so much about joy? Um, ultimately, it's because uh, he has faith in Jesus Christ. He knows he has been passed from, from death to life, that he serves the risen king. But uh, more immediately, something has given rise from this truth of the gospel that has brought joy to his life, specifically from the Philippians. What he says is that it is from their partnership in the gospel with him that he is joyful and thankful every time he remembers them. And that really is the theme of the letter, this idea of partnership in the gospel. The question is, what does partnership mean? What is Paul talking about when he talks about this idea of partnership? Well, it may surprise uh, some of you to know this is the, the word koinonia from which we usually uh, talk about fellowship. We talk about fellowship all the time, and we talk about fellowship, though, in a way, uh, frankly, that's probably not the same way Paul thinks about fellowship. For example, if I go out for coffee or I go for lunch with a lost person, uh, we would call that friendship. If I go out for coffee or lunch with a Christian, we would call that fellowship usually, right? We can come to a church service and we can sit here and we say, we've experienced worship. But if we stay afterwards and chat and talk, we say we've experienced worship and experienced fellowship, right? We talk about having lunch in just a few minutes, about that being fellowship. And it can be those things, but it's more than that. And that's all we mean when we talk about fellowship, uh, that we have failed to grasp uh, what Paul and the rest of the New Testament means when it talks about uh, fellowship. Fellowship is not just Christian friendship. It is much more than that. In fact, the word uh, fellowship, koinonia, partnership, is, is much more of a business term. Uh, you get the idea if, uh, if uh, I was going into business with someone and I needed someone to help me, whether I had the, the, the finances and they had the technical know-how, how, however it is, as we entered this venture together to seek to make profit, that would be called koinonia. That would be called a fellowship, partnership. In, in terms of what the Greek has in mind. And so uh, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says this, the heart of fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. So while there may be fellowship and warm feelings for one another as Christians, above all else, Christian fellowship means we have a shared vision about what is most important, not just for ours individually, but globally. What is most important eternally? And we are committed to partnering together, to working together, to see those priorities and that focus lived out and accomplished. So this morning, as we look to the future of our church, it's that kind of fellowship that we want to be thinking about. It's that kind of partnership that we want to be striving for. But again, the question we have to ask is, what does that look like practically? How will we know when we have that kind of partnership? In fact, I will argue we already, we already have that partnership now, even if we can deepen in it and continue it for the next 50 years. So, so what would it look like? Well, I think from Philippians chapter 1, we see at least four descriptors of the kind of partnership that we should be striving for. 
the kind of partnership that will ensure this church remains for another 50 years, not just uh, as a physical structure, or as a group of people, but as an effective faith family that will advance the gospel and its purposes in Bay City and around the world. So the first thing that we, I think we should notice is this. First of all, the kind of partnership that Paul talks about is a partnership in the gospel. Is a partnership in the gospel. In verse 5, Paul says he is thankful for the Philippians' partnership, again, in the gospel. Pretty clear. This is what brings Paul joy every time he remembers the Philippians. This is what they have endured then. For more than that, though, he goes on and he talks about their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They began well, and they have done more than that. They have continued strong. When you read the rest of Paul's letters, when you read through Acts, one of the things that you see is that um, Christians didn't always like Paul. That's hard to, it's hard to imagine for some of us because he's wrote New Testament letters. We're kind of holding him up. But some people didn't like Paul. One of the reasons why they didn't like Paul, they despised him because of a perceived weakness in Paul. The Corinthians loved great orators and, and people who spoke with great power and had great influence. And that was not Paul. Paul did not even take money from the Corinthians. He was not their employer. He made tents on the side to, to pay the bills. And for that reason, the Corinthians said, he must not be much. And so he had to, uh, in a way that he calls insanity, in other words, he says, I can't believe I'm doing this, he had to prove to them that even in weakness, the power of God was demonstrated and therefore he was worthy to be an apostle. And so there are some people, uh, whether through those that would be false teachers that would come through, they stopped supporting Paul. They stopped partnering with him in the gospel. And of course, his plan in starting churches was to go in and either support himself or receive support from other churches. That way, he was not a burden or he did not appear to be a charlatan to those he was seeking with the gospel for the first time. And what Paul says is, though some people have uh, stepped away from that partnership with me, though some people have stopped supporting my work in the gospel, you have not. You have not stopped supporting me. And it's not just supporting Paul. It's specifically supporting his work and establishing the gospel. You know, today churches are in partnership together for, for all kinds of reasons. Probably, uh, sadly, one of the most prominent reasons people are in partnership together in churches uh, is for the sake of themselves. Their goal is to have large churches. And they'll be very upfront with that. Now, I'm not against large churches, but being a large church can never be an end in of itself. That can't ever be the terminus goal that we have. We pray that in having a gospel-centered focus, we will grow into the kind of church that God wants us to be, but that's never just our end goal. There are other churches, and their, their primary partnership, their goal, their reason for being there is political action. They want to mobilize uh, at the right time, in the right seasons, all of the people in their church, in the surrounding area, and some people who broadcast national on television, all Christians together to vote what they perceive to be the right way on the right issues. And so for them, the driving force of their partnership is to see the politics of this country changed. And we could give lots of other examples, but the, the point here is this. Paul says what brings him joy, what causes him to be thankful for the Philippians is the fact that they are partners in the gospel. They're not worried about politics. They're not worried about uh, the size of their offering. They are worried about seeing the gospel advance where it has never been advanced before. 
And if we're going to be here for another 50 years, if we're going to serve God faithfully now and in the days to come, that must remain the focus of our partnership together. It must be a partnership rooted and grounded and focused on the gospel itself. Ultimately, because that is the only means by which sinners who deserve an eternity in hell instead get life with God for all of eternity. It is the gospel message that brings sinners from darkness to light, from condemnation to justification, from being at enmity with God to being reconciled with God. It's the message of the good news of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, who died a sinless death on the cross, and who was raised back to life so that those who look to Him in faith will be saved. That has to be the centering message, the focus of our partnership together. Right now the elders are reading a book on ministry called The Trellis and the Vine. And um, if you don't know what a trellis is, that's okay because I didn't either. Uh, Think lattice work. Okay, if you've got a vine system and you're growing to produce grapes or whatever it is, you, you have to keep the vines up on something. All right, most people don't want them all over their house and everything else. So you put up this lattice work, this trellis work, and that holds the vines up. It keeps them healthy and strong and able to grow and produce fruit. And what they draw the analogy out of is this. You have the vine work that is the disciple making that we are to be doing as God's people. The, the, the ministry that is focused on the production of the fruit of righteousness in God's people. But how is that held up? How is that work held up? It's held up by ministry systems, right? programs, events, planning, all those kinds of things. But what they point out in the book is the danger that is so, so prevalent in churches. The temptation is always to let the trellis work take over and be the focus rather than the vine work. So that way the focus is always on maintaining the ministry, is on maintaining the meetings, maintaining the programs, even if they are deficient in producing disciples. And Paul says, look, it doesn't matter what you've got going on in the middle of the week, on the weekends, on the first Saturday of the month. What matters is this, is the gospel going forward in the lives of your people who have already believed and is it pressing forward out into the world in those who have not yet believed. That must be the focus of our partnership. Secondly, our partnership has to be based on our confidence in God. Our partnership must have confidence in God. Paul says in verse 6, I thank God with joy when I think of you in my prayers, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. How did the gospel work begin at Philippi? Do you remember? You can read about it in Acts 16. It begins with Paul trying to go in one direction for ministry. Uh, He says in Romans 15 that his desire is to go, his ambition, the driving force in his life is to go where the gospel has never before been proclaimed. He says, it's okay for pastors to come behind and to build on someone else's foundation, but that's not my calling. I am the foundation layer, he says, uh, layer. And so he goes and um, uh, he tries to go one way and Luke tells us, uh, God forbid him from going in that direction. And we don't know what that looks like. He doesn't tell us. And maybe we'll ask Paul one day, what, what was that like? And so he tries to go in a different direction. And again, God says, no, don't, don't go that way. So he tries to go a different direction. And, and God says, no, don't go that way. And you can imagine Paul's a little frustrated here. And he's going, uh, where am I supposed to go? And one night, God gives him a vision of a man uh, that he clearly knows is a Macedonian, whether that's from the language he speaks or the clothes that he wears. Uh, all we are told is that Paul has this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. Come over here and help us. The next morning, Paul gets up and he says, I know where we're supposed to go. We're going to Macedonia. They need the gospel. 
And Philippi is in the region of Macedonia. And so he's given this vision of a man calling out saying, come here and help us. And you know what he finds when he gets there? Women. Women. No men. Not that there aren't men there, but remember Paul's strategy. Start with the synagogue. Start with those who already have the scriptures, all those who already have faith in the God and Father of Jesus Christ, and then you move out from there to the Gentiles. But here, the spiritual climate was such that they did not even have enough men to organize a synagogue. All they had were some faithful women out by, uh, by the seaside having a prayer meeting. And that's where he goes. And he kind of sits back and lets, listens, to things, uh, listens to things go on. And then they say, do you have something to share? And he stands up and he says, let me tell you about Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all that you have been looking for. And one woman of influence, Lydia, uh, God opens her heart, Luke says. She receives the gospel and things begin to move forward from there with the gospel uh, progressing in fact, Paul and Silas uh, continue to progress so much, they cast a demon out of a little girl who was making money uh, for a guy. He gets mad and they get thrown in prison for it. And yet even there, God supernaturally frees them from the prison. And as they're getting ready to leave, the jailer is getting ready to commit suicide because he realizes all of the prisoners are gone. I have no hope in life. And, and uh, Paul says, hey, dude, chill out. There's hope. And he says, what, what can I do? Well, how can I find salvation? And he says, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And God saves the man. The church is built up in these very unassuming, um, almost unbelievable ways, all from one who himself was once at war with God, seeking to destroy the very church of God, Paul himself. And so for all these reasons, Paul can look back and say, look, I am assured of this. God began the work. You cannot look at human reason. You cannot look at, at human logic and say, of course this would have worked out. Sociology says Christianity would have taken root there. No, says Paul. Christianity and the spread of the gospel defies human logic, but not God's logic. And furthermore, he says, because God is the one who has started the work, understand he is the one who is going to finish it. He who began the work will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Most of you have had a job where you begin, the first thing they do is tell you it's training day. They never just put you on the line or right in the front work on the cash register or whatever it is. They say, no, you're going you're gonna to get trained first. And they have someone who walks alongside of you and they tell you, <clears throat> do this and do that and push this button and pull that lever, you know, and watch your fingers or whatever else. And then after a couple of days, they say, okay, now you're on your own. Go for it, right? God never does that. God doesn't say, I'm going to save you by my grace. I'm going to begin the work. And then you're on, the, you're on your own. Have fun. Finish it up. I'll see you when Christ returns. He doesn't do that. He says, I have saved you by my grace and I will sustain you by my grace. The problem is we don't want to hear that. Very often we start right off into doing something and what do we do? We've not prayed. We've not asked God for direction. We've not asked God for wisdom. We've not said, I can't do this on my own strength. I need you to see it done well. Instead, we just drive off thinking we're going to be able to take care of this by ourselves. And what winds up happening is either we fall flat on our face and the thing fails or we do it in such a way that's not pleasing to God. The emphasis is in the wrong direction. The priority is focused on us and not on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reality is if we are to continue to be the kind of church that God wants us to be, if we, can, if we are going to continue to work without despair because of sin, we must be focused on God trusting in Him. You see, when we look at our own lives, when we look at the lives of the people in this city, we see sin. 
And if we don't see sin, then we're blind to sin, which is a very dangerous place to be in. And the great temptation for all of us is to say there's no way it's going to change. You look at yourself in the mirror and you say, why do you keep committing the same sin over and over and over and over again every day? You say you're sorry, but you're not repenting. Maybe you do repent, but the next day you do it again. Maybe the next hour you do it again. And what about this person that I work with whose life is literally being flushed down the toilet? I cannot see a way of helping them. And if we're relying on our own strength, guess what? Despair is all we have to look forward to. But if we have confidence and hope in God, the God of the impossible, the God who takes even people like Paul, a murderer, a legalist, someone who's consumed with himself and changes him to be the most humble and amazing missionary the church has ever known, then he will certainly be able to help us. He will certainly be able to bring up from the depths those that we know that are struggling with sin. And therefore, not to despair, but to have confidence, to have power and effectiveness in ministry, even for the next 50 years, we must make sure that our partnership together is done with confidence, not in ourselves, but confidence in God. Thirdly, our partnership must embrace sacrifice. Our partnership must embrace sacrifice. Paul is encouraged and joyful when he remembers the Philippians and their partnership in the gospel with him. And he says this, It is right for me, verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Okay, so... He's part, they're partakers in the gospel. They're partakers of him in his imprisonment, his defense of the gospel. What does that mean? You know, sometimes we read over these things and say, yep, yep, yep. But let's just, what does that mean? How are they partakers of him in his imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel? Well, over in chapter 4, Paul tells us a little bit. In verses 15 and 16, he says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul says, You know, what I was, you know my method. Somebody was supporting me when I came to you. And when I left, I wanted the churches of Macedonia to support me so that I could spread the gospel. And he says, nobody did that except for you. You were the only church that partnered together with me for the sake of the gospel. But here's the thing. This wasn't easy for them. We, we, may, we may assume Philippi was a wealthy city. The, the Philippian Christians were, were well off. But listen to how Paul describes them to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What does Paul say? Paul says these churches in, in, in Philippi have extreme poverty. They're not middle class. They're not lower middle class. They're not just poor. They are extremely poor, he says. And yet when they heard about the Christians in Jerusalem, their brothers and sisters in the faith whom they have never met or seen, that they were suffering through a famine, they begged Paul, let us give to help them. 
let us give to help them. And Paul says they gave according to their means. More than that, he says, they gave far and above their means. You cannot help but wonder, what did they themselves eat if they were giving so much away? How were they able, as Paul tells us in, in chapter 4, Philippians, how were they able to continue to support them? How easy it would have been for them to say, Paul, you need to, you need to talk to another church because we're small and we can't do a whole lot. You know how poor we are. You know sometimes it's a day or two before, before we sell something in the market and can actually have food. And when we do, we, we provide for our kids first. I mean, sh- surely you don't expect us to give much. And Paul says, I don't expect it. But you sure gave it. You gave over and above. In other words, they sacrificed. They sacrificed. And they didn't just sacrifice money. In chapter 2, we learn that the money that came to Paul while he was in prison came by the hand of a man named Epaphroditus. He was sent to encourage Paul and to tend to his needs in prison. This is how it went to Roman prison. There there were no uh, government plans. If you got put in prison in Rome... If you didn't have family or friends to come give you food and blankets, you would die of starvation and exposure, and that was fine. They would just scoop you up and carry you out, and they were done with you. And so they went while Paul was in prison. They sent Epaphroditus to aid him and to care for him and to provide for his needs. Now, let's just be honest. It's so much easier, isn't it, for us to say, I'll pray for you and I'll send you a check. I mean, for us today, isn't that pretty much the easy way out? But you tell me, what would Paul have appreciated more? Seeing a money bag arrive in the mail or having this man Epaphroditus show up, encouraging him face to face, cleaning out his wounds, hugging him, singing hymns of the faith with him, talking about the risen Christ with him, telling news of what is happening back in Philippi and the other regions that he's traveled through. Which would be more encouraging and helpful, do you think, to Paul? It would have been that. Loving, sacrificial partnership of Epaphroditus. You know, this is not, this is not a man who probably was able to uh, just, you know, take his vacation pay and go. This is a man who left behind, we don't know, maybe he had a wife and family, we don't know, but uh, he left his job. He closed up shop. He said, I won't be coming to the market for the next few weeks, maybe months. Let's so say, where are you going? I got a friend in prison in Rome. Why are you going all the way to Rome? Because I love him because I love him and I want to care for him. I want to encourage him. And I want to see him be ministered to the same way he ministered to us in bringing the gospel to us. And so Epaphroditus, along with the Philippians, sacrificed for the benefit of Paul because of their partnership in the gospel. The partnership itself meant that distance, money, time, even extreme poverty and sacrifice would not hinder them from fulfilling what they knew to be the right thing to do. And all of this leads to the last point, and that is this. Our partnership must exhibit love. Our partnership must exhibit love. Paul has told the Philippians how he feels about them, how he is encouraged by them. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
The Philippians had supported Paul in all that he did, whether he was on mission to the Gentiles or shackled in a Roman prison. They were partners with him in gospel ministry. As a result, Paul says, I'm not only confident that you are right with God and God is at work growing you and transforming you, but on a personal level, I have great affection for you. I love you. Understand, this is not, you know, we don't see the cool, detached professional here. And we don't see someone who is uh, just trying to ingratiate himself to get more money. Rather, we see someone who has a genuine love that comes from having partnered with someone in ministry, having seen them love you and sacrifice for you and remain committed to you, even when all your other friends have abandoned you. All of this may seem extraordinary to us, but it should just be normal for the church. Isn't that what Jesus said? Remember what he said in John 15? This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Not that you just say, hey, I love you. I'm praying for you. Pat you on the back and out the door you go. And I'll see you next Sunday because I don't really love you. I just say I do. That's not, what he, that's not what he said. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And in case you don't know what that means, the very next verse he says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying, the cross is the epitome of love for my people. Therefore, that kind of selfless, self-sacrificing love is the pattern by which you are to love one another. Now, you think about the implications of what Jesus is saying there. You think about the implications of that for how we live together, how we partner together, how we do church together. One of the things that frankly was probably inevitable, but nevertheless makes me chuckle, makes me cry, and scratch my head all at the same time. Yes, it's a a crazy scene to behold. I wouldn't wouldn't come over when that happens. But but one of the things that happens with with all of this internet technology, which is great for a lot of things, the the video would not have been put together if we didn't have Wi-Fi on the internet yesterday, I'll tell you that right now. But uh, we do church online now. So we would set up a camera in the back and we would just live stream and people from all over the world could click in and say, we want to join your church. Uh, usually, our normal time, 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings or whatever time zone they're in, uh, whether they're in a three-piece suit or their boxer shorts, they would just click log on and there they are, they've had church. Sometimes it's not even a real church. It's two guys, I've seen it. It's two guys sitting on a coffee table reading the Bible and praying and singing pretty poorly over the microphone uh, in, their, in their kitchen. And yet they boast of having a church of 3,000 members or more because everyone's clicked online on Sunday mornings. Now that seems, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just an old fuddy-duddy. That seems pretty far removed from the vision of partnership Paul and the rest of the New Testament has. Particularly when it comes to love. How do you love someone across a computer screen? Our, Our culture does all kinds of things. It calls love across computer screens, but that's not love. Particularly for the church, it is not partnership for the gospel. That requires face-to-face contact. That requires being in each other's homes. That requires you taking your vacation time to serve someone else who may be sick or dying. It may require you to give uh, something that you were going to use for vacation or a car and give it to someone else because they're out of a job and don't have money for groceries. It may require you to give up movie night and go to visit someone in the hospital or go serve in a downtown area somewhere. It requires sacrifice that is driven by love. The Apostle John says, do not say you love God if you do not love God's people. And Paul here sets the example for us, doesn't he? Just like the Philippians did as well towards him. They loved him and he says, how much more do I love you? 
They understand all these things. As Pastor Richard said in the video, it's all a work in progress. It's all a work in progress. One of my historical heroes is a Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. He died younger than I am now. And yet, there's amazing remnants of his life through testimonies, through sermons. And one of the things that was recounted in his biography by his best friend is that on more than one occasion, in cold Scottish nights, his wife would roll over in the bed and Robert's gone. And she would kind of sit up and she would hear this weeping. And she would look over the edge of the bed and he would be laid out on the floor with just a blanket wrapped around him weeping. And she says, Robert, what is the matter with you? Come back to bed. It's freezing cold on the floor. And he said, woman, don't you understand? He says, there are thousands of people in this city and I don't know how it is between them and God. That's not me right now. I'll just be honest. I wish it was. That's what I shoot for. But I will say this. I do love you. And I hope that the longer I'm here, that love continues to increase until the day I, uh, God retires me or you retire me, uh, you will be able to say that I loved you. Just like Paul says, a mother hen loves his chicks, a mother loves its baby, a father loves his son. That's the example that Jesus gave for us. That's the example that we are to follow with one another. What ties us together as the people of God, what ties us together even in this church service this morning is the fact that we had good weather, is the fact we all like the same sports teams, is the fact that we have similar careers and children. No, in all of those things, what should bind us together is a partnership in and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only in that kind of partnership that we will not only be effective in our ministry and lives for God, but that this body will be sustained for another 50 years of ministry. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the Philippians and their example to us. We are thankful for Paul's letter that you have preserved, that we might better see their example. We might see the instruction that Paul not only gives to them, but that they leave with their very lives. We pray, God, that you would bless this body, that you would bless each and every one of us, that you would be working in our minds and our hearts, God, that you would conform us to the image of your own Son, Jesus Christ. And that, Father, all of this would be done not for our sake, not for our pleasure, not even for our reputations in this city, but that, Father, it would all be done for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the glory of your name. As we continue to reflect on the sermon now, let us stand and sing the power of the cross.